lonely I'm Mr. Lonely I have nobody for my own I'm so Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing a number of films, uh, including the brand new film from director Miranda July that drops this weekend. That is called Kajillionaire. Uh, we will also be checking out the Netflix film The Devil All the Time, a film that dropped on Netflix last week from director Antonio Campos. But first, we are going to be checking out another Netflix film. This is a debut feature from Indian director Arati Kadav, and the film is called Cargo. That was from the trailer of Cargo, the new film from director Aradi Kadav, uh, written and directed by Kadav herself, uh, and starring Vikran Massey, Shweta Tripathi, and a special cameo by apparently a fairly major actress, Kankana Sancharma, uh, and a number of others. So, Daniel, on our 10th anniversary podcast, you suggested that we expand our cinematic horizons to Bollywood, and uh, I was delighted when you picked this film. I am I'm so curious, how did you come across this, and why did you pick it? Well, I wanted to see what was available on Netflix, because that's the easiest way for us to watch movies at this point. Uh, and I, I, I looked up just Hindi films, and I saw a sci-fi film, and... I did a quick little uh, research uh, to see like if that was if sci-fi was a common genre in Hindi films, and it's not. So this was a unique gem of a film, and it looked like it had really good uh, like reviews from the festivals. And I thought we'd give it a whirl. Like I know like the stereotypical Bollywood is like the dancing and the romance and and, and like the big big production cinema pieces, but this looked like low budget really interesting premise and i guess one of the ctsa in space yeah you you kind of selected the bollywood equivalent of an indie darling i do think we should check out some of those big studio produced bollywood oh, totally films i guess well. don't want that but to be our first foray i was absolutely delighted by this selection here as you say it was the uh, the toast of the mumbai film festival last year uh and then i believe it made a virtual premiere at south by here in the u.s but that was kind of it it, it had had its festival run cut short by COVID-19, and then Netflix ended up buying up the rights to it and uh, releasing it just uh, on September 9th here. Uh, the premise of the film, as delivered in te- in crawl text at the beginning, in the year 2027, so just seven years in our future, Homo Rakshasas, descendants of the mythical demons, these would be the Rakshasas, which we will talk about in a moment here, have entered the Space Age and have signed the Rakshas Minutia Peace Treaty. Their interplanetary space organization, or IPSO, has launched a series of spaceships called Pushpacks uh, for the reincarnation of recently deceased humans. So these things are up in orbit around the Earth, catching human souls as they leave the Earth in death, and then ushering them on to their next life. Uh, there's a whole series of procedures for it. They go through a gate, they have their memory wiped, they have their bodies healed, and then they then they go on their merry way. And there's some other stuff we learn of the course of the film as well. Uh, and this film was uh, shot over just a few weeks, I believe, uh, inside of a film center, and Man, this is this is like the epitome of guerrilla sci-fi filmmaking here. I was very impressed with the production design of this film. Uh, the production designer is uh, Meyer Sharma, and this film did a lot with a little. Um, it is it is something special about the sci-fi and fantasy genre to a larger extent that uh, you can make even the most basic sets, even the most basic models, designs, visual effects, 
uh, the film can feel much bigger than the resources that were available to the filmmaker. And that is the feeling that it doesn't, it doesn't happen as a rule, but it can happen. And I had that feeling while watching Duncan Jones moon back in, uh, back in the two thousands. And I had that feeling watching this film that this was, it. this was just a scrappy sci-fi film that could. And I had so many questions about the world that were, that, uh, that was introduced here. And so many of them were answered over the course of the film, but each new one introduced like three more. And I just wanted to know more about this world. So, uh, I was at, absolutely delighted by this film what did you think daniel i'll echo your your uh, sentiment there i thought this was great i love the retro vibe you know with all the decor i love the how they communicated with the home base with the with the horrible looking crt you know tv and um, <laughs> there was literally an adding machine on that console and we learned we learned later on that console has been there for 75 years since the peace treaty was signed as has the main character uh prahasta who uh who is uh, ushering in kind of his new assistant here and that's kind of our entry into the world is him explaining things to her right i thought this was great like i have a few quibbles here and there uh with some of the storytelling choices but everything from how the cargo gets delivered they you get to see a little vignette as to what happened to the people before they reached the the spaceship to like the process and procedure to the fact that they're like instagram celebrities on earth yeah. all of it worked it, it was great i had a lot of questions that, like you said, are our answers throughout the film, but they spurred more. My only real big quibble with the film was I was waiting for, like, the twist the whole time. And you don't really get a big twist. I was waiting for, like, the big, like, what's the action set piece? What's the, like, what's the big revelation? And there isn't really a big revelation. So it was just a very enjoyable watch. But I was, like, I was waiting. I was on the edge of my seat. I'm like... When's the big thing going to happen? The other thing that uh, was introduced by this, or, I mean, the, the sort of afterlife that gets set up here, you know, it's meant to sort of fly in the face of, uh, of notions of afterlife on Earth. At one point, we meet a, the, the film is essentially just a series of vignettes with, with each one of these people. We see how they die. Uh, and man, some of those sequences have like a Final Destination level. They totally uh, just, do. Yeah. Just chipper humor about the Grim Reaper there. They're very entertaining to watch. There's one where a guy who is like a stuntman is all wrapped up like a mummy. And the director's <laughs> explaining to him all the stuff they're going to do to him. And we learn that he was uh, he was set on fire and electrocuted. And then they were going to throw some snakes at him. It was very funny. Yeah, and he's like, can we do a safety check, like run through first? I'm like, nah, we'll just do it live. Sure thing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not good safety. Uh, I hope better safety was maintained on this uh, this set. But yeah, I mean, we meet some people who died in fairly poignant and disturbing ways. There was a guy who was stabbed to death by his own brother, and that guy's forced to reckon with the fact that there's no heaven, there's no hell. It doesn't really matter what you did on Earth. Doesn't inform your afterlife in any way. I mean, it's a pretty provocative notion of the afterlife of just like there is one. You're gonna move on to another life, but like. You know, that was just the previous season. You're going to be recast in something else. It doesn't really matter what you did. Right. And and, and the only time that, like, there's one person that they don't heal. And I really, I was really curious as to what that meant. And, like, I'm a total novice when it comes to, like, you know, uh, Hindu mythology. Uh, so I was like, wait, what, what does that mean? Like, is, is that person not going to be reincarnated into something? Or, or does he get reincarnated into something worse? Like, what happens to that person's, you know, entity, like their soul? And, like, it, it was things like that that the movie would bring up where I'm, like, really, like, captivated by all the questions surrounding just a little moment that they introduced. 
Yeah, the notion of sort of a secret war and a secret peace treaty between the humans and the demons, because that was the impression I got over the course of the film was the demons have their own sort of demonstagram where they're where you know all the all the astronaut demons are celebrities uh, up there, but the humans don't seem to have any sort of specific awareness that any of this is happening because all the humans are surprised when they end up on the spaceship. Yeah, that was a question I had. I was like, but are these people are Graham celebrities? Wouldn't somebody recognize them? So that's that's what I thought the movie was saying to me was only the Rakshasas themselves actually had any awareness of what was going on there. But the, the existence of this peace treaty does not necessarily it's a sort of secret government deep state kind of conspiracy, basically, like we've been fighting this this little silent war all these years. And it, it sort of creates this whole world of imagination where, like, there's been this secret war happening between humans and demons and it ended 75 years ago. And we're just going to make passing reference to that mm-hmm. because it's not that important in this film. And I love that as a, as a world building. Excellent. Flavor text, it's great. Like, Absolutely. I, I, I really enjoyed the performances too uh, from our two leads. I thought they had a lot of chemistry. I, I was, I, I was immediately, I bought into the relationship as like mentor mentee with maybe a little bit of Freud flirtation involved. Like it, it, it all worked. Yeah, the dynamic between them was interesting over the course of this because they've got different powers, but they've also got different ideas. Each one of the demons has sort of a power, and Prahasta has the uh, has the power of telekinesis, and uh, Yuvishka has the power of uh, she can heal people, and that's important because what Prahasta was doing was using a little gadget to heal Star people's Trek bodies. One. <laughs> yeah, and. and this is what I love, as Yuvishka mentions, uh, you know, there was a protest against mechanical doctors. And that's all she says about it, was that right. there was just a protest. Like, why was there a protest? What was their problem with it? Yeah, they, it doesn't they matter like the because box. They don't like the magic healing box. That and doesn't need to be explained. It's just that what, what we've learned in that scene is that Prahasta is out of touch with politics back on Earth, both right. within his own people. And, uh, I mean, these, pe- these demons live hundreds of years, I guess we're meant to believe, but... Yeah, he didn't seem particularly old. You know, like, he's been doing it... 75 years and he's nearing retirement but he's not he's not elderly yeah both he and uh, natiga who's been sort of his capcom his ground control officer this whole time um and also that guy doesn't sleep that's his power <laughs> no his power is that he can uh, make himself 86 percent invisible oh no you're thinking of a different guy actually that was uh there were two different people that he that he talked to down on the planet Oh, am I mixing them Natika up? is the guy who doesn't sleep, and Raman, the guy with the third eye on his forehead, he I believe he was the guy who could turn himself oh, okay, gotcha. mostly invisible. I might, I might have that backwards, but um, they both mentioned a power there. Either way, the powers were not that impressive, and they weren't that relevant either. Like they, they, This uh, is what they have, right? For them, like, for them it was just flavor, yeah. It was like being right, left-handed. So, uh, of the powers introduced in this film, which one do you select? I mean, being able to heal people seems the most useful. Uh, telekinesis seems like a fun trick, but like, you know, yeah, there, there are probably like lots of things trick. you can do with it, but, you know, in this world, it's not all that useful. I think I would choose not, not having to sleep. Imagine how productive I could be. I don't know, man. Like, you'd still want downtime just like you do in the, the hours that you have right now. I could watch so much more YouTube. Not being able to sleep sounds like being immortal. Like, it would be a mixed bag. It would just depend on what, what you do with the extra time. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. You could spend that time, like, getting a PhD or something. <laughs> like Probably. Yeah. Contributing to the store of human, or in this case, Rakshas uh, knowledge. So the Rakshasas, I read up on this because I, I of course, had never heard of these things either. I've only heard of them from D&D. <laughs> oh, that's great. That sounds like appropriation, which is probably what it was at the time. They're, uh, uh, but, they're really powerful spellcasters in D&D. They're, like, they're very dangerous enemies. Well, so from what it sounds like, uh, the Rakshasa has existed in uh, in Hindu lore. It's also sort of found its way over to Buddhism and Jainism um, in different forms. So 
basic the basic idea is that they are these demons, these supernatural demons. Um, in the uh, in the Vedic texts uh, I'm reading here, uh, they were believed to have been created from the breath of Brahma, one of the Hindu deities, mm-hmm. uh, when he was asleep at the end of the Age of Truth. And as soon as they were created, they were so filled with bloodlust, they started eating Brahma himself. Brahma shouted Rakshama, which is Sanskrit for protect me, and Vishnu, another god, came to his aid, banishing to earth all of the Rakshasas to feed on mankind, is basically the idea. Like, yeah, if you go, you're going to eat something. Eat those, you eat eat those, those guys, yeah. Stop bothering me. I'm busy. But by the time they made their way over to the Jains, uh, to, uh, I believe it's Jains. Jain, Jain, Jainism, yeah. Um, Rakshasa was meant to be a kingdom of civilized and vegetarian people living on Earth. Well, Jainism as a religion is, is essentially veganism. It's, you don't harm any living thing. Like they have uh, Some people will have brooms to sweep out insects when they walk uh, to avoid stepping on any of them. Oh, interesting. Okay, so Jane, so Jane is not a being. Jane is an ideology. Is that? It's yeah, not a it, it's a form of it's a religious sect of it's a religious sect of Hinduism, as far as I understand. I understand it to be Hindu adjacent. That is about all I know about yeah. it. So apologies for our ignorance on that. But it looks like that piece of lore has sort of moved between the different religions yeah. of this region, the different major religions of this region, and, and taken on different forms. So the idea that these are Raksha, uh, that these are Rakshasas that have. Uh, lived on Earth alongside humans, had a secret war with humans, gone into a space age, and developed advanced technology alongside humans, and ultimately made peace with them, is is a great way to go about it. It feels like one of these modern vampire stories, like we would tell mm-hmm. uh, exactly uh, in American cinema. Like I'm just going to take this this old idea, and I'm just going to put a put a uh, space age spin on it or a modern day spin on yeah, it. And I love that it is so imaginative. I agree. I thought it was great. And even their spaceship is named after a mythological chariot. Oh, the pushback. Yeah. Okay, I was curious about that. It sounded like it had to be named after something, but I didn't know that. Yeah, it's one of the one of the Gog's uh, chariots. I don't have a ton more to say about this movie, except that it is a delight, and you should check it out on Netflix. I think that what you said is is accurate. There's really no twist to speak of. It's kind of just about discovering how these two think of their existence and how they think of their job and how that how that sort of relationship and their their beliefs about it change over the course of the film. And that was really quite compelling. They, it is a number of fascinating performances. We learn more about what is driving each of them over the course of the film. It's really quite a quite an impressive and layered world and uh, and characters that are created here. Yeah, I was. I was- I was proud of uh, Yavishka at the end. Like I, I thought, like as a mentee, you know, as somebody who, you know, I, I think like her character showed a lot of growth, and that was cool to see. I liked that. Uh, I'm going to call out one guy here. Dr. Chitan Kanodia uh, gets introduced at the 90 minute mark of this film. And it's out of nowhere. Like, like we've just gone from a scene where Yuvishka and, and Prahasla are having, basically having an honest chat about what they feel like about the situation on board the spaceship and what they want to have happen there. And all of a sudden we smash cut to this guy down on Earth about to start a temporal teleportation device. <laughs> <laughs> about to fire it up you. for the first that time. Was... And I'm like, holy shit, is this thing still adding mythology here? Is this how the dead are transported from Earth up to the spaceship? And, like, we're about to learn how that got invented? I am here for this. And then the guy just electrocutes himself and dies. But the best part of that, guy, that guy's character was Yavishka's asking him, like, are you going to do anything different, like, in your next life? He's like, no, I'm going <laughs> to nope. fix my machine. <laughs> I'm yeah, going to redo uh... it. 
Yeah, it's, uh, first of all, during the flashback to Chiritan, we get a nested flashback of him back in school being mocked for having brought a tooth a toothbrush to school instead of a pen. Very strange choice, but I was, I was on board with it. But yeah, uh, Yuvishka is literally sitting in the fucking memory wiping chair like it's a chair. That just seems like a very bad idea to me, but I was, I was nervous while she was in it. Right. But she's quizzing him on basically would, what would you do differently? And his answer is, well, nothing. I hope I do the same thing. And uh, and that, that became kind of an interesting idea that people are what they are and that's what they're going to be no matter how many lives they live. Right. Some people are going to yeah do what they do. And, and I think like that's an interesting concept for sure. I, I think it was interesting the person that they didn't heal. Like is that person just a violent, you know, antisocial person? Like are, yeah. you know, are they a dangerous entity and just had to be like discarded? Yeah, and like, do we ever consider? We get the sense that they don't have any. They don't have any ability to interrupt the process. Like, they may they may be able to perform or not perform one of their duties uh, for each uh, for each dead person. But like, one way or another, that soul is getting sent back to Earth. They can't just fucking airlock the guy and send him send him to e- on to eternity floating. Right. They talk about the person. Uh, one of the, one of the machines broke. So the guy, the detective, lived with uh, Rahasa for for a while, and then he just disappeared. Yeah, they kept it a little vague as to whether that was just how how his memory was being depicted or whether he literally disappeared. Because there were a number of scenes where characters disappeared off screen, but it was unclear if that was just how the story was being told by by either uh, Prasta or, or Yuvishka in that moment, or if, if it was a literal disappearance. I'm not and, sure. And one final thing that delighted me was, so you die, right? And your cargo, you make it on board. And people are like, can I just make one phone call? <laughs> Okay, like not not really too concerned about their lives, right? Like not too concerned. Like yeah. I'm dead. Like what? what like what's gonna happen to me now? Like not too not too selfishly concerned. Just like can I just call my wife real quick? You know, well, it's <laughs> it's such a marvelous tease because. As the movie goes on, we, of course, don't know the level of awareness that humans have about any of this. And over the course of the film, I got the impression that humans basically don't know anything about this. Um, maybe it's maybe it's just in the nature of this supernatural world to evade detection by humans. But the idea that somebody's in the middle of a big deal and wants to, wants to call and like finalize one last financial transaction, like that fucking matters at this point. Or that a guy wants to go back and go home and call his wife. And, of course, his, his motivations were not what he stated. I'll just leave it at that. But, like... Some human has got to call attention to that. The authorities down on Earth investigate people's deaths. They they call time of death, and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. you received a call at this time. Like, that person must have still been alive at that time. Like, there have got to be these anomalies created by these little rule violations here. But, like, this, the movie was not only not interested in explaining that, it was not interested in being a stickler for the rules about that either. And I was totally okay with yeah, that. Yeah, that was fun. Like, I, I recognized it, and I thought about it. But I was like, well, if there was ever a sequel to this movie, I hope they address that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, yeah, I, I thought this movie was delightful. I'm glad I picked it. I'm glad we watched it. I want to see more Hindi films. I, I think you know, it's a whole universe. There was no dance number over the credits. No dance one, number. I, I, I felt it's robbed. a whole universe of cinema that we just don't really have any exposure to. And part of that is just like us being ignorant of it. And I think now is a perfect time to, you know, lift that veil a little bit and explore. Yeah, I've seen maybe three or four Bollywood films over the years. It's not a large number of them. There was one last year that I saw called Dear Comrade, which is one of the most maddening fucking things I've ever seen. <laughs> so, it, like, it, it's I think that Bollywood is Bollywood is big, loud, and crazy. Every time I've seen little clips of action films out of Bollywood, they are they are heavy on the CGI and they have no interest in maintaining the laws of physics. And I am here for that. <laughs> 
Sometimes a movie being just deliberately gleefully ridiculous, I I can appreciate. Yeah, so I think I recommend this movie to anyone. Anyone who likes sci-fi, anyone who wants something a little bit different, check it out. Yeah, I mean, I I felt the same way watching this as I did watching. Again, I mentioned Duncan Jones Moon, but other little small scale sci fi things like be, like uh, the red the Red Dwarf TV series. You know, it was shot on cheap little sets uh, at the at the in a basement in the BBC, but it still managed to feel huge and real and significant because of the vast spaces and times and concepts that were being that were being discussed. And that is exactly how I felt watching this film. So, um, if you love uh, sort of nineteen fifties model driven sci fi production design, you will love this as well. I love the the look of the spaceship kind of squeezing its way through space like a jellyfish. It was a cool concept. So, yeah, very well done all around. It's great. Check it out. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think this film got a raw deal having its festival run cut short. I think it could very well have uh, have become uh, kind of a kind of a festival darling over the course of this. So, yeah, do not let this film slip under the radar. Definitely check it out on Netflix uh, if you get the chance. And now on to a review of Kajillionaire. After this person. And clear. Now. There's a camera there, there, and there. Cash. Nope, mini order. This is not a cheap tie. Most people want to be cajillionaires. That's the dream. That's how they get you hooked. Hooked on sugar, hooked on caffeine. Ha ha ha, cry, cry, cry. Me, I prefer to just skip. So do I. February, March, April. Uh, we may have to pay in installments. Rent is an installment. It's a monthly installment. They are real characters, super unique. But you vouch for them, right? She learned to forge before she learned to write. Oh, actually, that's how she did learn to write. My favorite movies are the Ocean Eleven movies. This is exactly the kind of thing that I've been wanting. So what do your parents do, hon? Hon, you've never called me that. But you could if it was a job, though, right? That was from the trailer of Kajillionaire, the new film written and directed by Miranda July, starring Evan Rachel Wood, Deborah Winger, Richard Jenkins, and Gina Rodriguez. This film features a family of grifting, semi-homeless people, the Dines. Robert and Teresa, played by Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger, and Evan Rachel Wood, who plays Old Dolio, the 30-something sullen teenager with a deep voice and clearly arrested development. It is one of the most interesting performances I've seen this year. And then we have uh, Gina Rodriguez as Melanie Whitaker, who is basically just a regular, well-adjusted human person. A bit more worldly and kind of gets involved with this family of, uh, of grifty magoos. So, uh, Daniel, I'll put it to you. Um, first of all, did you have any prior experience with Miranda July's filmography prior to this film, and what did you think of the film uh, i have not so this is the first film that i've seen from her um, i thought this was a very strange movie <laughs> full of very strange characters i had a little bit of a hard time uh connecting with it but overall i thought it was solid with a shrug i think evan rachel wood is really good <laughs> like her performance is pretty fantastic because Honestly, I couldn't figure out what she was doing with that character for like half the film. <laughs> I, right. I was like, "What? What is this character?" But it was clear it was something very specific that she was doing. Though <laughs> we just had to figure out what that was over the course of it. Yeah, and I don't know. Like they're grifters, but like it's, they're, they, they refer to themselves as skimmers, right? So they're like the worst type of grifts. This is not Ocean's Eleven, okay? Like they are the bottom of the barrel. They could barely get by. Like, the stakes of this film could not be lower. We're talking about $1,500 for rent. 
That's for rent the big money in the, that they have to make. For rent in the decrepit office adjacent to a bubble factory. Which makes no where the sense. Bu- what factory where the bu- makes bubbles? Tell me. Where the... Where the bubbles spill over the top of the of the drop ceiling into the office space, and their job as the five hundred dollar a month family that lives in the office space is they have to sort of grab it with grab the giant pink gobs of bubbles with buckets and dump them into the drain in the bathroom. Because as Stovic Man, their landlord, uh, played by Mark Ivanier, a very a very weepy Mark Ivanier playing that guy, um, the problem is manageable. <laughs> So, like, this building should be condemned, truth yeah, be told. Like, but, like, that's... I don't know. Like, the story the story is a bit weird. Like, like there's, a, like, a really heartwarming scene that feels kind of out of place in this film. Um, like, it happens, like, you know, about midway through. Like, overall, I, I enjoyed watching it, but I guess I felt very removed from it the whole time, right? Because it, it was hard to connect yeah, you, with anybody. You felt a little off kilter. Yeah. And, like, it, it, what I really liked was the aesthetic like the bubble factory and like the bubble seeping into the to the uh, the office space, that was a cool scene. Like that's a cool shot. I think it it was really beautiful. Like how the you know you have the drab decor of the office space, but then you have like this really vibrant pink bubble. You know, yeah, and they scene. they went out of their way to show that that was done at full scale and for real, and I appreciated that. Um, that was probably the most expensive bit in the film, but uh, I. I gotta say though, yeah, this film was weird, but I was expecting it to be weird because I saw I've seen one previous Miranda July film, Me and You and Everyone We Know, uh, which I believe came out in 2005. She's only released three feature films. The rest of it has been kind of smaller, uh, either short films, TV, art installations, that sort of thing. She's kind of not primarily a film director, um, and uh, and I was kind of expecting something weird and artsy, and that is what I got. Um, yeah, Old Dolio is a very interesting character because she is someone who has clearly been, been deprived of, of I guess what, what her parents would call performative parental love uh, because they think that that's what phonies do. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to get your birthday presents with ribbons on them. We're not going to do a little dance. There's we're not no going to hug you and say, we love you. Um, there's an amazing scene or there's an amazing moment early in this film where old Dolio goes to, goes to mom class for her friend, uh, Kelly, because she can't make it, but her caseworker insists that she go. So there's some sort of involvement with social services happening here that is only alluded to. But, uh, so she ends up going to mom class and she learns about the abdomen crawl, which is when a newborn baby is placed immediately skin to skin on its mother's belly and crawls up to try and find, uh, find the nipple. And this is something that, uh, that, they, they attempt to do uh, in the context of most childbirths is try to do skin to skin immediately because there are a bunch of favorable medical outcomes that are associated with this. Uh, helps stabilize the kid's heartbeat. Basically helps the kid transition from being a fetus to a baby. It helps helps a whole bunch of different systems start up properly in the in the newborn. It's a fascinating process. Um, very uh, you know the clear evolutionary basis for it. Like this you know kid is out. Kid needs to be fed immediately. <laughs> um, and that uh, that kind of ends up be- being this weird kind of recurring motif in this film as well. But, uh, but there's a there's a moment where she's recapping that mom class to Kelly on the street afterward, and she's like, "Yeah, something about you know you got to let the baby crawl up your belly onto your breast, but like don't do that, don't don't baby it." She starts to say, and then trails off. Don't baby that newborn baby. That's literally something. Right, you gotta, you gotta teach her the trade. Day one, minute one. What's the trade? What's the grift? Yeah, teach them how the world works. It's tough and you got nothing coming to you. That's what it is. I mean, I think the movie really comes alive when Melanie gets introduced here because she's the one who initially 
ends up getting roped into this uh, this sort of uh, running grift and various cons with this family. But she's also the most normal person in in the the mix, and she's the one who's like immediate as soon as as soon as it turns bad with this group, she's the one who's like, oh well, that makes sense. I guess uh, the only problem I have with Melanie, and I, I thought uh, Kino Rodriguez's performance was good. It was just that I don't understand why Melanie would want to associate with them. Like, she seemed a bit too eager, like, on the plane to gigging on the heist. And I, I guess maybe she was bored and maybe her character was bored because, like, she, she deals with an overprotective mother and, like, she just wanted to, like, have some adventure in her life. And that's that's fine if that's the character motivation. I guess I didn't feel like it never felt genuine, right? I was like, it's just a little bit too convenient for her to be associated with the group. Well, you know what they say, start your uh, stories on the most interesting day of a character's life. If they were just going through the motions and uh, doing mostly unsuccessful griffs all day and never meeting anyone new, then we wouldn't be, we wouldn't want to tell that story. So the idea of somebody coming in and disrupting the weird equilibrium that they've built up, I didn't really have a problem with. Um, as to why Melanie would be interested in getting involved with these people, I kind of got the same vibe as you. Her life is fairly safe and fairly low stakes. Uh, she has a stable job and, and a stable home life, basically. You know, she's getting some support from her from her parents, from her mom who sounds like she's pretty well off and uh i don't know maybe she was just like hey there's this is a weird quirky little uh, little indie film that i can get involved in we had <laughs> moments like that in our in our 20s of like oh i just met some fucking weirdos i'm gonna go with them for a little while and see what see what happens you i know, have just... never in my life decided to hook up with a bunch <laughs> of weirdos for no reason first of all yes you have second no no. Now you 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 meet weirdos in passing. You go hang out with the weirdos for a little while. That's just what you I do guess, when you're when you're when you're a bored uh, old, middle class person. Old Dolio is so weird. I guess could not buy. I, I couldn't buy that uh, Melanie would be that interesting hanging out with her. Yeah, I mean, old Dolio is meant to be twenty six, um, which is fairly close to Ed and Rachel Wood's actual age. But the uh, but she basically acts like a like a sullen teenager, like I mentioned. She she's like doesn't 13. seem like. She, yeah, she doesn't really seem like she's learned how to interact with the world or really has a good sense of herself or her or her place in the world. And as we learn the reasons why that is the case, the performance came to make more and more sense to me over the course of the film. So. Right, right. Just those first few scenes, I'm like, what is this character? Like, right. I was like, is she autistic? Because that's totally fine. I guess I, I, I have questions and I'm confused. Yeah, I mean, I had the same questions about her parents because the ways in which her parents interact with her are also very abnormal and very disturbing to watch. But uh, Richard Jenkins and Deborah, Deborah Winger, um, I mean, they're playing some pretty unlikable characters, but I think they did a fine job with it. They're meant to sort of be the toxic people in her life holding her back, but they don't see themselves that way. They see themselves as looking out for family. We split everything three ways. And the villains who don't see themselves as villains, if you can if you can make that seem well-realized, it, it generally works for me. So they're, um, Yeah, I agree. They're just so pathetic. Like, they, they really like, you know, uh, Robert's a conspiracy theorist. They they have this obsession with the big one, the big earthquake that's going to kill us all. Oh, yes. Uh, they teach old Dolio that, like, somehow doors become electrified during earthquakes. Like, it, there's a lot going on here. It's, it's just all just so strange. And that's, like, the, the, the film made deliberate choices when it came to, like, earthquakes always happening. There's always tremors. People just seem to be cool with it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's know, Los Angeles. Uh, Only the tourists uh, get scared of the tremors. Right. And I understand, like, it was also sp- supposed to be, like, part, partly a metaphor. But at the same time, I'm like, 
this is all just so weird, and I don't I don't know where it's going, and I'm not sure I want to be a part of the ride, but I guess yeah. I'm a, I'm on board. I like the moment where uh, the earthquakes are introduced and Old Delio's commentary on it is, if you're lucky, you just get crushed to death and die. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, Better not to live through that. Are we going to do a spoiler section for this film? I think we should, because we need to talk about the specific griffs that are involved here. But uh, any uh, you, you mentioned a fairly touching scene. I think we do want to get into spoilers before we talk about Agreed. things. I, I have some thoughts on the same one here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's... There are some just odd little flights of fancy in this film. They go into a hot tub shop and they they sit in a dry hot tub and uh, figure out how how they're gonna how they're gonna purchase that all together. Um, at this point, they've got like six hundred dollars in cash on them, and it's it was nine thousand four hundred ninety nine dollars minus one hundred and fifty dollars down, and then ninety nine dollars a month and twenty nine percent APR. I will admit, Daniel, uh, this is not film criticism at all. This is just me being <laughs> this is just me being pedantic. I paused the movie to uh, to plug those numbers into an APR calculator. You gotta run the because numbers. I, it's a lot. Because I was pretty sure that is a loan that will never be paid off. Ninety nine dollars a month is not even enough to cover the interest. And the answer is yes. Uh, if you make the loan term forty four years or longer, then the payment will drop to its lowest possible amount, which is two twenty five ninety three per month. <laughs> you will end up paying one hundred nineteen thousand dollars over the life of this loan. A oh total amount of interest one hundred nine thousand. Uh, I actually increased the term of the loan to ten million years, and the payment never dropped below two twenty five ninety three. <laughs> uh, well, so, that is yeah. just smart business by that uh, hot top salesman. That sounds like an old Daniel move, right? There. This hot tub would be one of the best investments in the United States if you could be sure that they would keep making their payments for the for next 10 million, million years. years. Sure. Yes. <laughs> Flights of Fancy. That's a good way to put this uh, this film. I think you will I think this is a film that you do need to stick with, I think at least through the first act because you will know if it is going to work for you by that point. Uh, I think the the weirdness of this film really starts to land once once Melanie's character is introduced and you start to get a sense of what it's all for. Um I can totally understand somebody coming into this film being like, what is going on? I cannot, I can't, I can't handle this, but it's not a very, it's not a super long film. And I think it's got something interesting to say about, uh, the, the nature of human companionship. Um, Boy, I tell you, there were people reading things into this film that I did not see at all. I saw, saw one review headline. I try not to read the actual reviews, but there was one headline. It was, this movie's all about what baby boomers have stolen from millennials. Like, nope, <laughs> it was it was very much not about that. that is I, look forward, not, not. I look forward to reading that person's take. No, these, <laughs> My overwhelming reaction watching this film was that I was delighted to watch a film that did not have to be about everything. It was just about these particular weirdos. <laughs> Yeah, I mean there is there is a greater message, I guess, uh, that comes comes to fruition in the last act. But yeah, it's a bunch of weird people doing weird things. Like it's fine. I, I guess I wasn't a hundred percent on board, but I mean, old Dolio is interesting enough to stick with it. Yeah, most definitely. All right, from here on out, spoilers for I almost said spoilers for old Dolio. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> call old Dolio. <laughs> All right, from here on out, spoilers for Kajillionaire. So, uh, here is the slightly diabolical thing. Melanie not only involves herself with the family's grifts, she also suggests their next grift. And what she suggests is not a very nice thing. Uh, it is that she's got all these elderly clients at the optical shop at the mall. She works at basically lens crafters. And 
They're all good friends with her. They all treat her nicely because she's young and attractive. That's basically what she implies is that that's what's what's going on there. And she could get invited over to one of their houses, compliment their various antiques, get them to sell them to her for nothing or just give them to, or for, for, you know, next to nothing or just give right. them to her. And then they could sell them at a flea market for a for a profit, which goes which splits three ways. My first reaction to this plan is she does not need the entire family to do this. She could just do it herself. Right, right. I guess maybe she can help for maybe the logistics of it, but no, this is a very easy premise. Also very mean, like you said, like I understand like you want your first grift to be easy marks, but like these are people that are just nice to you at work and yeah, sure, maybe because you're attractive, that's why, but that guy's not cool. Like you'd be predatory towards elderly people. Now that said, Melanie immediately backs away from this as soon as she realizes, first of all, what the family is actually going to do once they get there. Because she she immediately is like, I can't go through with this whole antique grifting plan. Um, and second, she uh, so it was just a brief diabolical impulse on her part. Fair enough. Uh, she learned a little something about herself there. But then what actually ends up happening is while they are all chatting with the old person, the family just starts up a workflow that they clearly already had, which is they locate the checkbook, they snap a photo of a previous checkbook stub, so they've got the signature. Uh, they steal a check from it and then and then later on at a diner old dolio does the forging and they write themselves a check for you know six hundred dollars or, or whatever amount it is which they need again for, for low stakes here we're talking not a lot of money low stakes but still a mean and fairly serious crime that they've committed there <laughs> so now in kentucky uh, would that be a class four uh felony oh boy <laughs> Some, actually, it literally would be. Yeah, um, I, right. re- I remember one of the Class D felonies that was listed, uh, in addition to murdering Brianna Taylor in her bed, was a credit card fraud between five hundred and thousand dollars. So I think yeah. I think forgery for that amount would be the same amount. So, hey, look yeah, at that! Yeah, we're learning things we're about learning civics. Things. So the touching scene that I think you're referring to is the one with the old man dying at his house. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, for me, like I'm thinking, like if I'm that old man, I'm I'm lonely, I'm dying. Just having people around doing everyday things would be a source of comfort. And I thought that scene was sweet, even though they were literally just waiting for him to die so they could find his checkbook. Yeah, I mean, the I think that's how it started. Uh, and that was that was certainly how they acted about it once he was dead, was, all right, now we got to find this checkbook. But I think there was a brief moment of grace there of, right. oh, something real is happening right here. We need, to, we need to act like human beings for a second here. And there was also a sort of parallel play acting going on there because they were they were putting on a show of being a family for, for the job. And old Dolio was realizing that her parents were not withholding affection. They were not withholding the trappings of family from her because they didn't have the capacity for that. They just didn't want to. They just didn't have the inclination, exactly. And that, and so that made this scene kind of devastating, but also weirdly touching, because we also get to see old Dolio acting like a compassionate human being. So not only has she been deprived of this in her own life, she nonetheless developed the ability to give compassion herself. You know, the, the scenes with her and the old man, she was being very sweet to him in her own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, th- this scene contained multitudes. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was the best scene in the film, to be honest. Most I, I didn't think any other scene really came close. If you really just fixate on that scene and talk about it and dive into it, like the movie's worth watching because none of the other scenes are really that compelling except for maybe towards the end with the diner. Well, we're not the diner, the fancy dinner. I think by the time this film reached the true depths of despair, that was when the big earthquake happened, and that is when the third act kicks off, and I thought this film totally stuck the landing. The entire, because that is when old Dolio and Melanie's relationship picks up I and becomes interesting. I don't buy relationship for a second. I, I, I mean, I don't know where they're last, but I totally bought it on its own terms here. 
No, I, I didn't think they had enough uh, enough chemistry between the two. Like, it makes sense for Mel. It makes sense for Melanie, I guess, to be involved in the family to add some excitement to her life, right? But like, what I didn't buy was that she was into Old Dolio as a romantic interest. Old well, now Dolio, wait a second. Did who, you not get? Did you not get like uh, like romantic vibes between those two? Oh no, I did. But like, film? I didn't buy. I didn't feel real to me, right? Like, I understood that's where the movie was going. But old Dolio at one point crawls across a parking lot. <laughs> Prior to, to that, old Dolio literally crawls out of a closet. Like, how much more explicit can the movie get with its imagery? Here? I know. I like, that repressed homosexuality very, is one of the themes it's going for. It's very obvious. But I'm like, no, no, no. This is a grift movie. No. These two would not be together. This doesn't make sense. In other films... They take off the girl's glasses to make her attractive. <laughs> I was just about to bring up she's all that. I am so glad that's where your mind went with this. They don't cut her hair. They don't. <laughs> she doesn't really dress up. But we still have the same moment of catharsis between them, where they have their they they go into that little dark bathroom thing because that's the darkest place that Melanie right. knows in the city, and that is the moment when the big one happens. And it's not really the big it's one because the building doesn't one, fucking come down. But it's, one. it's big enough that they're scared and. Uh, and we get this lengthy sequence where the star, where the sort of star field is floating in the darkness, which I love that because the idea of sort of lost light floating in the darkness, that's totally a real thing. You ever find yourself in pitch black darkness, your mind will start doing weird things. With I know, I've been there. Um, yeah, you ever, you ever go into like, like deep into a lava tube or deep underground or something like that? It's great. But yeah, the idea of visualizing that while a character is literally monologuing about how she thinks they're both dead... <laughs> Uh, first of all, it was a nice throwback to to the other film that we just reviewed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, yeah, why don't they show up on the spaceship? Got to be up on the spaceship if you're dead. Yeah, but uh, then they're gonna get up there and be like, "Wait, we don't speak Hindi. This is gonna be a problem." We're very confused. <laughs> you're wiping our memory now. What? I don't understand. Can I make a phone call? But yeah, the uh, the other big confession that happens there was she was like, "Yeah, this was all just a this was all just an act. We were gonna rob you. We were gonna access your accounts. We were gonna steal your checkbook. Blah blah blah." And Melanie has to have a moment of like. Am I not just supposed to be pissed off about what you just revealed to me? Like, old Dolio comes out and is, like, giddy to be alive. And we see this performance open up in a way that we've never seen. Um, and she's just, like, going and, like, uh, ran- ransacking a convenience store. Because uh, she's so happy to be alive that, like, Twinkies taste better. And Well, she's, like, uh, so excited to talk about the guy, uh, the, the clerk and his job. And, like, did you have to go to school and be trained for this? And he's like, are yeah, you going to rob me or what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Somebody becoming just a ball of manic energy after that level of repression throughout the entire film. I was here for it. What did you think was going to happen with the, with the parents and the final job? What did it end the way you were expecting? What what? How did that scene play out? Yes, but it's still preposterous. Which part? Uh, that Melanie got robbed of every single thing in her apartment. Because I could tell you, as someone whose wife works the night shift, that I can't do dishes quietly, <laughs> and. I know where all that stuff goes. Like, I can't imagine that you could pilfer somebody's entire apartment, clean it out, spotless, and have a person sleep through it. That is not possible. It does not make any sense. So maybe they've got a white noise generator in her room. It's fine. But like, no, 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 what's, uh, no, that makes no sense. First of all, you just know that Melanie has renter's insurance and it hardly matters anyway. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I don't know. The whole, like, is the money still there? It, then the whole evening was a lie and they're monsters. Like, if, and then uh, old Dolia was, like, positing a third scenario of, like, if it's just her share remaining, 
then we know we can only ever be what we are, but we love you and we wish you well. She was speaking on behalf of her family toward Melanie at that moment of like, we're fucked up, but you're not. And that's okay. Uh, but it ended up being all the money was there, but they planned on stealing it and everything else later that night. It was a lot. <laughs> that didn't work for me. I guess I, I understood that's what the parents were going to do. I guess the, how that happened. I was like, I guess don't buy it. I don't buy that. Even in this crazy fictional LA that we've <laughs> that we've concocted here. I guess don't buy that it's possible to clean out somebody's apartment like that. Like missing a few things. Sure. We have already established that these particular 60-year-olds are accomplished limbo artists. They have the ability to very quietly grab buckets of bubbles and almost like a performed dance, move them across the room. Nope. I totally buy nope. they can rob that place blind. Like, I'm, I'm a little... I'm a little unclear about how they got all that stuff onto the bus, uh, you know, onto the 35 or the 7 or one of the buses they take to get out of there. But, you know, I have some questions about the logistics, but whatever. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. No, okay. The kiss at the end. Were you on board with the kiss? Did it make sense to you to make out in a toy store? I was not only 1,000% on board with the kiss, I was surprised it didn't happen in the previous scene. I, th I thought it was just going to happen after Melanie announced so what that they stole everything. Yeah. I thought we were just going to get kiss, boom, credits, that was it. But I mm -hmm. totally bought that it was something they both very much needed to happen in that moment. It was something they were both kind of aching for, and that was the romantic catharsis they needed, because that was when old Dolio realized what had been seeded throughout the film, which was that A, she was capable of giving love, and B, that she was deserving of receiving love. And if the movie was going for nothing else, it was making me feel something during that final kiss. And however preposterous or ridiculous that final act was, which I agree with you, it was definitely straining credulity, but credulity was not really the point of this film. I was completely on board emotionally with what was going on in that scene. So I, I would call the I would call the final act a success on that basis. If it didn't land for you, that's fair enough. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I don't, I don't vehemently disagree or anything. I guess at the end when they kissed, I was like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> and I was like, just roll credits. Yeah, I mean, when when it happened, I was like, yes, this was what the scene was for. There's no reason to have this scene if it's right, not going to end right. that way. So, yeah, no, I, was, I, was, I was on board with that. Lovely use of Mr. Lonely, I think it was. Uh, sort of an old-timey throwback. It was the same one that we saw her doing a very strange dance to uh, earlier in the film. Uh, it's a ni nice touch. Uh, that's right, yeah. Except, I, I, I think, like, now that we've talked about it, I, I come away liking the movie a little bit more than in the moment. Like, in the moment, I was like, well, that was a weird movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it has a lot to say. I think the performances are solid, and, and Old Dolio is a very interesting character. I guess felt like some parts of it were so preposterous. I, I got disengaged, and I was still enjoying watching the film. I was watching it, but just kind of passively at that point. It wasn't like Cargo, which we just reviewed, where yeah. I was actively engaged the entire time and really interested to see what happened next. Yeah, it's funny. You and I, I think, had opposite reactions to this film and The Devil All the Time because The Devil All the Time was a movie that I, I was engaged with, but I was also like scoffing at the entire time. We'll get into it when we talk about that yeah. film. But that is a film that has aged better as I think back on it. Kajillionaire is a film that I felt the same way as you for maybe the first third of it, and then I was fully engaged from that point on. Fair enough. Uh, so it, it got me uh, in the moment, but uh, you know I've, I've had films sort of twist and mutate in my memory over time, and I've had my reaction to them change over time as well. There, there have been a number of films where I thought I didn't like them when I saw them, and then like a few hours later, I'm like, no, that kind of landed for me. So, uh, And I've also had ones where I liked them in the moment, and then a few hours later, I'm like, I can't remember a goddamn thing that happened in that I think, movie. I think one of the last times that happened for us was I liked Suspiria a lot more than you did, 
And when we talked about it on the episode, like you came away thinking like it was better than you remember. Yeah, I, I think you actually talked me into liking that film over the course of the move or over the course of our podcast. Because like we just had kind of we, we we diverged, right? Like we kind of had a similar opinion, and then like we went different directions. We hit that fork, and then I think when we talked about it, we merged. And I think for for me, now we've talked about it, it, it. It's warmed in my memory. It's a really good performance from Evan Rachel Wood. Do you watch uh, Westworld at all? I've seen like two episodes. So in Westworld, Evan Rachel Wood plays a very important character. And it's a character that I honestly can't really tell you all that much about because for the first few episodes, she's one of the robots. So she's play, she's sort of play acting one of the Western characters. Mm-hmm. She's basically the, the rancher's daughter who gets kidnapped and sort of plays out a, seri- a series of sequences um, that are that are written for her character. She's basically like a throwaway damsel in distress character. But this is, but then... As all of the robots do in this uh, this series, she becomes something greater than what she started out as. At that point, it becomes clear exactly why an actress of Evan Rachel Wood's caliber was was hired for this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that is uh, and Tandy Newton and man, that show is just full of, of powerhouse actors. But having seen that performance, having seen the entirety of that show, actually, I'm still a season behind on that show. But having seen the entirety of the first two seasons of that show, I kind of knew what Evan Rachel Wood was capable of on the acting front uh, more than I had seen from. Any, I haven't really seen all that much from her apart from that. I really thought this was outstanding, and I kind of figured there was something deeper going on than just the the sort of sullen teenager that we see at the beginning. And I was sure. I was pleased to see that was the case by the end. Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? I would be really curious to see what other people who listen to this podcast ha- have to say. Just because this is a strange movie, <laughs> and and I think that it's going to rub some people the wrong way. Some people are going to really love it, and I guess why I want to hear those opinions. I want to see want to see other people's takes. Uh, here's a question for you: what uh, What do you think was the meaning of the title "Cajillionaire"? It was said once in dialogue, but they never flat out say what they mean by it. So I'm, I'm curious well, what you think. I, I think when they were referencing "cajillionaire," they were talking about people who bought into the system, right? Like they, they yeah. like they were talking about themselves as being skimmers. That's what they do. That's how they get by. But like, oh yeah, some people become cajillionaires because they sell out. I guess if I yeah. remember right, and maybe that was the title of the film has to do with old Dolio rejecting that premise of, of what her parents' lifestyle is and selling out to become a, a cajillionaire, right? Like, like reaching her potential. I took a slightly different meaning from it, because I don't think you're wrong there uh, as far as what Richard Jenkins' uh, character was saying there, but I think that uh, what he said was that there are all these other people out there, these phony, fakey people that are all trying to be cajillionaires with the clear implication that they're not going to achieve that. Um, the idea of participating in the economic system being a sucker's game. Right. It was very dismissive. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the idea that what she has done by wanting human affection is uh, is becoming a cajillionaire or becoming a sellout, I don't think was necessarily what they're going for. I think it was just that they were they were positing that there's a third way between being an ascetic sure. and sort sort of t- taking yourself outside of society and being like, well, we live in a society, and maybe in that society, I want to have a place to live and have some some people that I like to to be around here with me, and maybe some you know the occasional bit of human affection, maybe just a little bit of that. For me. Yeah, it's not unreasonable. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a clever. It's, it's for a thing that gets tossed out casually 15 minutes into the film and then never mentioned again. It was it was a curious choice for the title of the film. So. Sure. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Kajillionaire, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. That goes for Cargo as well. I don't think I did our full outro there. And now on to our review of The Devil All the Time. 
How and why people from two points on a map without even a straight line between them can be connected is at the heart of our story in Knock'em Stiff. You ever think about how we ended up orphans living in the same house? I know what my daddy did. Some people would say it's just dumb luck. You take pictures? I do. I see a smile pretty enough to photograph, that is. Others would tell you it was God's plan. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That ain't no preacher. He's as bad as they got on the damn radio. When people look back on it, they had no other choice. There's a lot of no good sons of bitches out there. Excuse me, preacher. You got time for a sinner. That was from the trailer of The Devil All the Time, a new film on Netflix that uh, dropped a couple weeks ago from director Antonio Campos. Uh, This was adapted by Campos and I believe his brother Paolo from a a novel by Donald Ray Pollock uh, of the same name. And uh, Pollock also serves as the film's voiceover narrator. The film stars Tom Holland, Bill Skarsgård, Riley Keough, Jason Clark, Sebastian Stan, Haley Bennett, Eliza Scanlon, Mia Wachikowska, and Robert Pattinson doing one of the most interesting accents I have ever seen on film. (laughs) So Daniel, this film, I believe I picked this one, mostly because it looked like it had a very interesting ensemble cast. I could list half a dozen people in this cast that I was interested in and fully half of that, you know, delivered on that, that, that level of interest here. But uh, this film is basically just a series of interconnected vignettes in relation to these two small towns. We have Cole Creek, West Virginia, and we have uh, the town of Knockhamstiff in Ohio, which is outside of the slightly larger town of Mead, Ohio. And basically all of the action in this film takes place between these three towns. We meet a wide cast of characters over multiple generations. We learn about the vast influence that religion has in this area, as you can imagine. And uh, we uh, we meet a variety of interesting characters who, uh, let's just say, do a lot of interesting things. So, Daniel, I, I found this film to be a lot. I tweeted on the night that I watched the film, did they consider having the devil just some of the time? <laughs> The amount of disturbing, violent shit that happens in this movie, it really is quite a sight to see. I, at one point, paused just to list for my wife, who was in the next room, all of the things that had happened in the preceding five minutes of the film, and it was just a lot of murders. <laughs> so, uh, Daniel, I'll put it to you. What did you think of this film? Did uh, what, what would you say its appeal was, and uh, did you enjoy yourself watching it? Well, geez, dude, like, I didn't watch the trailer. I didn't look up a cast list. You said devil all the time. I clicked OK on Netflix. And, like, <laughs> ten minutes into the film, I'm like, what the fuck is this movie? Like, it's so violent. <laughs> and the violence escalates so quickly. Yes, it does. I was I was engaged. I was I was really enraptured by most of it. There was a couple of, of, of parts that didn't work for me. Not going to tell it this was based off of a book because it was just too much for a movie. I, I agree with you. It felt overstuffed, you know, and unlike an overstuffed Oreo, I thought there was just too much. I am not only going to say the movie was overstuffed, I'm going to say that in addition to all of the events and characters that happen in this film, I think somebody needed to say no to Donald Ray Pollock in the uh, in, in the desire to make himself the narrator of this 100%. film. Now, I don't, I don't know what 
what the workflow there was. I don't know if that was a condition of the film being made or if that was simply a creative choice that the filmmakers made to involve the involve the author and involve the narration in this way. Either way, it did not work at all. The narrator of Doom, as I, as I dubbed him in my notes here, was always there to just make things worse, but he was also there to just spell out subtext for me that should be... Like, you gotta let your actors act. You've got some great actors in this film. There's a moment in this film, and I won't say what's happening because it's pretty late in the film, but there's a moment where Tom Holland's character is is sitting there and it's a fairly significant and emotional moment. And the narrator is literally describing what's going through this character's head. And I'm just like, let your fucking actors act here. You need to, you need to let that be spelled out in Tom Holland's eyes and face and not just tell me what it is. It even goes to like, Tom Holland utters a line of dialogue, and then the narrator continues, he said, and then continues from there with his inner thoughts. It, it did not work for me at all. It was completely I, I agree. I, I didn't like the narrator. I like narrators in like plays, and I like narrators in books, but narrators in movies tend to really be hit or miss, and this one was a mess. I would say they could have excised the entire serial killer plot. I didn't care for it. I felt like it was unneeded. I was waiting the whole time for it to intersect with the main plot. And I think it intersects way too late. To be significant or matter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the acting is good. Those characters are well portrayed and they were interesting. I just felt like it was unneeded. When it came, there's so much other stuff going on that adding that serial killer plot just felt like one, one thing too many. So I think we've got a lot of events to discuss once we get into spoilers here, but uh, I think let's talk about a few more of these performances here, because some of these characters I think are quite memorable. I've got plenty to say about a few of these characters that I can't really separate from their plot lines, so I'm just not going to mention them here. But let's talk about Robert Pattinson here for a second as the, the charismatic Reverend Preston Garden. So excited when I saw him show up. One of two wackadoo preachers that we meet in this film. We also meet Roy Lafferty, played by Harry Melling, uh, who, uh, man, we've we've seen just a just a renaissance of Harry Melling uh, over the last few years. Here, he was he played the evil far- big pharma guy in uh, the Old Guard. Yeah, he did. He was also in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs as the poet who, uh, the actor without any limbs, who was uh, sort of wheeled up in a cart oh, and gave, yeah. uh, gave Shakespearean monologues. So very interesting performances from this actor. But yeah, I mean, this guy is a batshit crazy evangelical preacher who demonstrates his faith in the lord by dumping a jar full of spiders on his face hey don't we all like like i told you like i knew i could trust that guy because no man would dump a bucket full of cgi spiders onto their face and not be trustworthy well, and you just know the narrator of Doom was there to make the situation worse because as as he's fucking hiding in the closet from his family, um, he's uh, the the narrator makes a point of telling us that one his one of those spiders bit bit his face, causing it to swell up like a pumpkin, and he smelled worse than a truck stop shitter, <laughs> and then. And then he emerged two weeks later to go on some other merry adventures, which we will talk about in spoilers right. here. But uh, we, we later on meet another preacher, uh, Preston Teagard, played by Robert Pattinson. And man, this accent, it is a very interesting accent. He's from I, Tennessee, baby. My understanding is from uh, from interviews on this is that uh, Robert Pattinson did not work with a dialect coach for this. He developed this accent himself, and I and it largely worked here. There were moments where he was speaking where I was just like, I can't believe that's coming out of this actor's mouth. It was almost like watching uh, Daniel Day Lewis in Lincoln. Like it was it was that level of sort of transformative vocals. It was uh, it was just very odd to watch. 
but it totally worked. And he he's striding that line between creepy, predatorial, but also kind of seductive very, very well. Um, you know, as many sort of charismatic authority figures do. It's it's an intimidating character. He's a little scary, uh, but you can sort of see how this guy ropes people in. So yeah, he's a little scary. He's a little you know campy, uh, but he's he's great. Like he's so he's so different from everybody else in the film. <laughs> That are like dark and brooding and crazy religious. Like he he is just playing everybody like a fiddle, right? Like he's in love with his voice. He's in love with the power he wields in the Lord. And he is delightful. Uh, well, also, we one of the first things we learn about him when he gets introduced, because there's this whole sequence involving a poorer family bringing in, this, bringing in these chicken livers. And uh, because that's the best thing they can afford, because they're like 11 cents a pound. It's the shittiest organ meat you can imagine. But nobody cooks them like you do. Everybody says that. There's this there's this whole moment at home of like, well, we can't afford steak. We can't afford, you know, pork or chicken. We're going to get those chicken livers. We're going to cook them up. And they're going to love it for the uh, for the, the church uh, potluck, basically. Mm-hmm. And boy, howdy, if Preacher Preston does not call them out in front of everyone and fucking humiliate them. <laughs> oh, man. He, just, he dragged them in the mud and he just mocked them to their face in a way that was... It was just so painful to watch. Well, so here's what I'm wondering, Daniel. Did you pick up on the religious uh, subtext or the biblical subtext of that scene? Because that that uh, is actually a parable. It's actually not a parable. It's a lesson that Jesus Christ teaches uh, that's referred to in several of the Gospels. Yeah, um, really. pl- playing out right then. It's called the Lesson of the Widow's Might. And the basic idea behind it, it's I believe it's I believe it appears in a couple of different gospels. I looked it up afterward, but the idea is that this poor woman came in and she gave it she gave just like two shekels or whatever sort of the lowest denomination of coin was, but that was all the money she had in the world. You know, she saved it up and she gave away everything she had. And uh, and Jesus Christ says to the assembled masses, many of whom are, are wealthier people who gave lots more money to the church, I tell you the truth, this woman gave more than all of you did because she she was the least of us, but she gave she gave away everything that she had and you got, you guys just gave what she could afford. Um, and so the idea that... that somebody can be poor but generous and that generosity is greater because they are poor is essential to the uh, to sort of the ideology of Jesus Christ the idea that the people who have the least are giving away the most he was throwing that lesson in the trash right there he was saying because this poor woman brought this garbage plate here I'm gonna do all of you a favor by eating the garbage plate so that right. all you can enjoy the nice things that you brought for yourselves now I understood that message I understand the, the parable behind you but I guess- it's a total perversion of the parable that's and that that is a parable that I learned a number of times growing up. So I immediately recognized that what we were being told, if at least if you're coming at the movie from a religious background, is this guy is not a very good preacher. Or he's he's definitely a 21st century Christian. Indeed. Uh, and of course, we learn in fairly short order that this guy is not a very good preacher through his actions. But I just wanted to call the movie out for, uh, and I, I suppose the book probably as well, uh, for seeding that in the in the biblical subtext of that scene. So. Uh, much appreciated there. Now, what did you think of Willard? Willard, uh, this was Bill Skarsgård's character. This is Arvin, Tom Holland's character's father. I think this character worked for me. He's very simple. He's very violent. Um, very violent. He's kind of the character who helps Arvin become what he what he's going to be. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I liked I liked the performance better than I liked sort of what happened to him. I mean, we see him in the Solomon Islands in World War II, coming across one of his fellow soldiers having been crucified and left for dead by the Japanese, uh, by the Imperial Japanese Army, who's left him there, and 
and then he and then he shoots the guy in the head to end his suffering. I'm like, you didn't you didn't call for a medic. There was no no chance of saving that guy. I don't, I don't think know. there was much of a chance of saving that guy. We didn't get that close of a look at him. I think we were meant to think like his intestines were spilling out and like that guy was was left for dead, but was going to die no matter yeah. what. So fair enough. Um, but yeah, this guy became real fucked up and religious after that. And but also like he's sitting he set he sets up this. This sort of holy cross in his in the woods behind his house, and that's where I go to be with the Lord and just like do my hardest fucking praying. And you pray hard at that at prayer log. That's not that's not weak shit there. You have to go hard at that log. I like the performance. Uh, the character's pretty fucked up, but you know the character's supposed to be pretty fucked up. So I was waiting for him to turn into an evil clown the whole time, and it didn't <laughs> happen. But that you're right. That is what we know Bill Skarsgård from. Uh, yeah. Come on out to the woods. You'll float, too. Yeah, I was like, uh-oh, you don't want to make him mad. He'll stalk you for seven years. Yeah, I mean, he's doing this sort of, uh, he's doing this kind of simplistic ideology of, you know, you're going to be the warrior looking out for the, you know, there's some people that just, just you know, gotta got to wait for the right yeah, time. Yeah, you to be the sheepdog, knock, yeah. Knock him out. Yeah, you got to be the sheepdog, exactly. It's, it's just another version of that same ideology. I mean, um, he was are, smart, though, like, you pick your spots. He taught Irvin, he taught him right away. You don't fight someone, hang on. You pick your spot and kick the shit out of them. Yeah, you ambush them, you stalk them, and then you take them out one at a time, yeah. Which is just a prudent move, I suppose. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, it's, it's very you know, strate- strategically smart. Yeah, I mean, watching Tom Holland deal that level of violence here was fairly shocking, having just seen him in, in sort of lighthearted Marvel movie violence yeah, prior I, to I this point. Yeah, I think Spider-Man had in him. Yeah, but uh, by, by and large, he pulled it off. Um he managed to be like, he's not a physically intimidating guy, but I, I at least bought that he was able to do all of those things. So. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't preposterous, right? That like he could beat somebody up with a weapon. Yeah. People underestimate you and then you use that to destroy them. That's uh, that fits. So, uh, yeah. Um, I have so much more to say about so many more characters, but I think we probably need to jump into spoilers. I think, here. I think we do. Like I, I have to say, uh, the, the movie, the movie held my interest the whole time. I was definitely enjoying it. It's just very, very violent. And like coming off of watching like something like cargo <laughs> or kick Julian air. It was like, I told you on messenger, I was like, bro, I need, <laughs> I need a palate cleanser after this because it's just so violent. And, like, it's not gory violence. It's just just escalation of violence. And it was a little off-putting at times because, it was, like, I was cringing watching it because, like, I know how this scene's going to unfold. But I tell you, Robert Pattinson, that performance was just absolutely great. And I, I loved every second he was on the screen. There are a number of amazing performances here, including one that I have not mentioned yet. But uh, I, I would say, by and large, the this is not a movie to see complicated uh, women. I would say the women largely get short shrift in this film, with the possible exception of Eliza Scanlon, who plays Lenora uh, Lafferty. She's at least got a little, a little something going on there. Oh, I don't know. Um, in that she's be- sort of become devoutly religious and has that sort of tested over the course of the film. But these are very simple characters who are not treated as anything as anything but either instruments or recipients of violence over the course of this film. You know, so, it really, it really does, you know confirm my suspicions as to what life is like in West Virginia and, and Eastern Ohio. And they're all very simple characters that are just prone to horrific violence and still commit animal sacrifices for some reason and thinking could resurrect people for some reason. And that makes sense to me why we fly over those states. You should check out a documentary. You shouldn't because it's not that good. But you should check out a documentary <laughs> called The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. I don't want to watch that film. That title alone is a turnoff. 
the whites are a family that live in West Virginia, and they are basically just serial drug offenders and criminals. And oh, that is what no, the that's what the documentary is all about. Is just their various legal goings on, and it's a fu- it's a fucked up movie. It's like watching Tiger King. You just feel dirty watching it. I like, can I, should, watch I shouldn't Tiger be King. supporting this. Yeah, I'll say that uh, even though I I've dunked on this movie for its voiceover narration and its sort sort of cruel nihilism, by and large, I liked this film. Uh, I ended up remembering this film quite fondly i I think it's a film that uh you can definitely enjoy if you're prepared for the level of violence that it has to uh, to deal here um i think that the doom narrator comes very close to ruining certain scenes of the film by just kind of gilding the lily like the scene's bad enough without you telling me that it's worse uh and that is mostly what the narrator was there for was like well you think what you're seeing here looks bad well it's about to get worse whenever that guy spoke up for a character i'm like well this person's about to die so and he usually made that fairly clear with what he was saying there and that did not work for me but as i think back on the film it doesn't really ruin the film for me either so definitely uh i would still recommend this film even though it's got some issues yeah i agree i i think it could have used some editing to edit down some of the scenes or, or edit away the narrator maybe i would have personally taken out the serial killer plot but that's just me it just didn't work for me i haven't mentioned the name of the serial killer yet but i will say that performance i really really liked yeah it was very uh, good it's, it's it's an actor that i quite enjoy so um uh, but yeah it, for a film that was overstuffed it was definitely not necessary I'll the, that. That, all the actors and actresses in this film i like, do a really good job like the film itself is very very well acted it's just that there's just so much of it, and for a, for such a simple premise and ideology in the film, I was like, all right, we could use the scalpel here and kind of clean it, clean it up a little bit. If we were going to trim anyone, I probably would have trimmed uh, Sebastian Stan's character as well as uh, Sheriff Bodecker. He doesn't really do that much Agreed. I, in the course I, of the film. But. I was, that, that, his side plot too, I was like, I don't really care about this, you know, but okay, maybe it's going to intersect with the main plot. He just kind of seemed like he was there to be important at some point, and, uh, you know, whatever. We'll talk about that when we get to spoilers here, so... Let's do it! All right, from here on out, spoilers for the devil all the time. God loves you, Helen. Stab. Good lord. What <laughs> <laughs> Oh god, Roy. That was that was excessive. Roy is fucked up. <laughs> well, first off, Roy doesn't even bring any material components for a resurrection spell, <laughs> which makes no goddamn sense to me. Like what do you need for a resurrection spell? You need a bag of something. Well, it's a, it's a, I don't know the exact spell per se, but like it's a level nine spell. I mean, like it takes a lot of training and know how to do that. You probably need some quest items with you. And plus, you gotta stab her with, like, a ceremonial weapon, not just a rusty screwdriver. Exactly. Like, I practice with some orphans first. And get the get the spell down, get, like, before you kill your wife. So this was the scene that I described to my wife as I stepped out for a moment to grab a drink of water. Was that, uh, was that okay, so we have this charismatic preacher who dumped a bunch of spiders on his face, which I also called out to her as it was happening. And she was like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> So then I tell her, yes, this guy brought his wife out into the woods. They left their baby with a friend. They go out to the woods. He stabs her to death in the neck with a screwdriver, then tries and fails to resurrect her. Uh, then he leaves his cousin by the side of the road after his cousin informs him, you are, in fact, just a crazy man who murdered his wife. There's no, there's no greater mythology here. This wasn't an accident. Uh, well, I'm disabled now an accessory. cousin. Disabled cousin. 
Uh, yes, yeah. And, and his, his cousin's just like, yeah, I'm now an accessory after the fact, so let's just drive. Uh, and then, he, and then uh, Roy, to his credit, leaves his cousin on the side of the road, does not involve him in his criminal activity from there on. And he gets picked up by Sandy and, uh, hold on, what is his name? Carl, uh, the Hendersons, who happen to be serial murderers, which I got to say, that was one area where the narrator tipped us off early on. When we first met them in the diner, mm-hmm. um, there, was talk about, uh, there was talk about how he liked to shoot people and... Like a very clear double meaning involving with his camera. I'm like, oh, okay, they're going to be serial killers. Cool. Oh yeah, like that, was, I, that was clear from the get go. Very, very cl- clearly spelled out when they were introduced. Man, I love this performance from Jason Clark. Just the giddy, creepy evilness of this character. <laughs> uh, when he fir- and when he's first revealed, he uh, they go out into the woods and I believe it's R- Riley Keoff is uh, there on the dock and he's just like, don't you think my wife's uh, attractive? And the the preacher's like, oh well, I don't know about that and. Uh, he's like, no, so here's what's going to happen. You're going to fuck my wife. I'm going to watch it and take some pictures. He didn't make it clear he was going to murder him until afterward. But, uh, yeah, no, he ended up, uh, they didn't, didn't didn't go through with the swinging, but he still got murdered on the dock. That was uh, that was a lot. That was a lot, Daniel. It, it was a lot. And, and for it to not really be tied to the main story, I was like, of that Roy, the, the, the preacher was, I was like, what? why is this We're that like 35 happening? minutes into this movie. We're not even into the second generation of characters yet. And I guess we're just disposing of characters left and right. Well, because right. I thought like Roy was going to be important, right? Because he's the traveling preacher and like Willard wasn't too impressed with them. And, and like he's like, I thought that Roy was going to play a larger, a larger part in the film. And, and then he's just killed off by this traveling couple of serial killers. And I'm like, I mean. What's he certainly happening? seeded the idea that religious life in this area is fucked up. So mission accomplished i guess yeah yeah i I agree with you jason clark's performance is quite good like he's he's very creepy and very terrifying um i just didn't understand like was it a sexual kink of his to take the photos first before he killed the person or was it just part of the setup i mean they're clearly involving sex in their ritualistic murder so they're so they're they're clearly getting off on it in some way like that was what was implied was that both of them were into it in some sort of sexual way but it, uh, but apart from that it, it's never spelled out in detail what i what i noted uh, in my notes here was i wanted more screen time for for uh, jason clark and riley Kiaf here but uh but it was not coming and i'm kind of with you in the end you could have cut this entire subplot out of the film and i can really see it much. working in the book i can see that plot working in the book really well well, especially if these are your agents of disposal, if you need if you need to get rid of a character, including <laughs> at one point we we meet just the nicest army private in the world, oh, one of the no. only just absolutely pure souls that we get here, and this movie does not let that guy out without us showing his dick chopped off and just blood everywhere, and they're they're laughing at him, and uh, and then uh, you know she she ends up calling in his dismembered corpse to the base because she's starting to feel bad about this stuff, like it's it's bad. Yeah, oof, yeah that. That guy was not gonna not gonna get out of it that easy. Like, I mean, uh, Carl straggles him and like blows his brains out, presumably. And that was after he shot him once, I think. From uh, yeah, from he shot him in the crotch, there. right? So yeah. his genitals were all blown to bits. Yeah, you don't shoot guys in the dick. That's one thing even South Park knew not to be cynical about. So <laughs> so oof. yeah, but so like the performance is good, but the plot, like I said, like could, could have been excised. Um, I want to talk. I want to talk about Eliza Scanlon as Lenora because I feel real bad for Lenora. I feel real bad for Lenora, too. Uh, Even the narrator of Doom makes her ultimate demise even worse. Oh, just so sad. 
Yeah, so we learn the true depths of Pre- of Reverend Preston Teagarden's depravity because not only does he enjoy seducing young women, uh, in a scene that I think strode a line between uh, between seduction and sexual assault in a way that the movie did not trouble to differentiate, which I found fairly disturbing as I was watching it. It was one and the same. In my view, Robert Pattinson was playing a predatory character insofar as he was abusing a position of authority to right. seduce what was probably supposed to be an underage girl. So that so there was. Clearly, like the, yeah, the notion the of consent in that scene was not not a thing. He liked but, he liked trolling high schools, most definitely. But uh, and we also later on learn this guy is married and uh, and has a has a wife who, I mean, the like the sound design of the movie even troubles to to gild the lily a bit. Like, not only do we do we see Arvin surveilling him while he is getting a blowjob from his wife, she is like choking on his dick in the scene. Like that is on the soundtrack mm-hmm. of the film. They felt that was worth including. <laughs> So just to make us extra convinced of this guy's malevolence after we've already seen him impregnate an underage girl and then uh, and then first deny that he had any involvement in it and and also encourage her in the strongest possible terms to unsafely end her pregnancy. He's a bad dude. <laughs> yeah. And like so in that scene when Lenore, Lenore goes out to the barn, I was like, oh, she's going to try to try to do an abortion. And that is go, what I thought. And, and it's going to go horribly wrong because farm implements aren't good for abortion. They're not good medical tools. They're not sanitary. Yeah. And they are not precise. But that's not what she was doing. She was going to hang herself. And then she has second thoughts and then hangs herself anyway. And I was like, yeah. oh, God, like access, well, well, and we, demise we didn't character. need the narration there. We didn't need to be fucking told that this character had second thoughts, but then fucked face. up and died anyway. It was, yeah, it was clear on her face. You need to, res- you need to have more respect for your actors than this movie had. So yeah, that, that continued to bug me, but it was still, yeah, I mean, it's horrific scene. And that was what created sort of the Cassius Belli for Arvin to come back and murder. Uh, oh boy. I mean, Spider-Man was pissed at Mr. Uh, Edward, uh, Edward Cullen, so... Oh, yeah, he doesn't just leave him strung up outside the police station, you know, saying, you know, two cops send to jail. Like, he <laughs> he, he straight up murdered that guy, so this, this is the gritty Zack Snyder reboot of Spider-Man exactly, right here. Yeah, Spider-Man with an edge. So, yeah, uh, Sheriff Lee... Sheriff Lee Bodecker, there we go. Uh, Sebastian Stan... There's an entire subplot where, first of all, Sandy, who is married to Carl, the serial killer, uh, she's also a serial killer herself, is also a sex worker around town and is working for this this bad guy, Leroy Brown, because you always name your bad guy Leroy Brown, of course. Right. Of course. Uh, baddest man in the whole damn town. And <laughs> That character, I was like, why are you? I don't care about you at all. You're don't here worry. to be murdered in like 10 minutes, and that was exactly what happened to him. Right. I'm like, yeah, you're you not know. that scary. Like his, uh, what was it, Bobo, his uh, sidekick? I did not even write down his name. Now, <laughs> whoever he was, he got shot in the face by uh, by by Sheriff Lee. Yeah, I guess. So I, that whole plot, I was like, I can see this working in the book. I don't care about this in the movie. Definitely overstuffed, but uh, I mean, to the extent that we got any interaction between him and Sandy, and any sort of feeling about, we got a little scene between the two of them, which was enough for us to buy that he felt kind of bad that you know his sister and brother-in-law ended up getting murdered later in the film. But he obviously didn't care about the circumstances of their demise. This was clearly a shootout in which his sister and brother-in-law were the aggressors, or at least were willful participants. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the whole his sister having having uh, blanks in her gun thing, like, who are you going to blame for that? Obviously not this third party. Like, this is not a guy who's interested in the truth of what happened. He just wanted revenge mm-hmm. on anyone. Well, he was worried about his uh, upcoming election. And so much oh, that's he true. started killing people. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I felt nothing watching the Winter Soldier and Spider-Man fight again. It uh, you, didn't you knew how really it was going to but like, hey, let's talk about the scene that made me tear up. The poor dog oh, that he had to bury. Because Willard doesn't sacrifice his firstborn son to save his wife. He sacrifices the poor, sweet family dog. Well, he, he knew the fix was in. If you try to sacrifice your firstborn son, God pops onto the mountaintop and is like, oh no, you don't have to do that. You've proven your faith just by attempting it. That's, uh, it's all good. You can just uh, do animal sacrifices from here till eternity. <laughs> that poor dog deserve better so i teared up a little bit when uh i'm gonna keep calling him spider-man because arvin's a dumb name but when spider-man <laughs> goes and buries his uh buries his long dead dog like that was that was sad for me you know it was sad but it was also kind of preposterous if you're gonna you know if you're gonna call out uh kajillionaire for being for for straining credulity here the idea that his dog's bones would still be there like 12 years after it happened i didn't really buy that why not yeah, that, that dog would have been scavenged by other animals. And well, the bones might have Bones scattered there. everywhere. And it wasn't, it's not like he found the full skeleton. I've read enough serial killer novelizations to know that, uh, that uh, you know, bones get scattered by animals all over the place. Sure, but he didn't, he didn't find all the bones. He found, like, the skull and, like, a couple of, uh, like, uh, shoulder bones. I guess. And, and, you know, he's also burying the memory of his parents there as well. Even though no, no, I don't care about was, them. I care about the dog. Yeah, I mean, Charlotte, a character who I wrote down her name, but I'm not even sure why. This was Haley Bennett, who is as much of a doppelganger for Jennifer Lawrence as I've ever seen. But uh, um, but yeah, this is a character who got almost as short of shrift as Mia Vashikovska, who shows up as Helen Lafferty. These were women who were in the film just to be killed either by circumstance or by their husbands over the course of this. Yeah, and Haley Bennett uh, dies from cancer, right? She does, yeah. And, uh, and Mia Vashkovska dies by being murdered by her husband. And, oh boy, uh, you don't bring in such a... Mia Vashkovska is a very good actress, and I've not seen her in much for the last few years here, but she's very good. You don't bring her in for this rinky-dink of a role, so I was pretty disappointed in that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, the women deserve better in this film, for sure. Uh, but this is a man's film. This is this is Eastern Ohio, West Virginia man film. I, I, I get what the movie was going for, and it was entertaining on its own terms, for sure. But uh, but it's just a really fucked up movie, is what it comes down to. It, yeah, and, and I, I came down liking it, right? Like I, I enjoyed watching it. It's very violent, but it sustained my interest the whole time. The ending was predictable, but again, I, I was enjoying it. But now, like, in the reverse from Kajillionaire, I'm souring on the film after, like, talking about it, even though the performances are really, really good, and I really enjoy Robert Pattinson. So I, I think it's a, it's a hard one to rate because it's, it, it's, too, it's too long. There's too much involved in it, but the performances make up for the fact that there's some clear failings. So I I have come away from film ensemble films are hard to rate on that basis because there will be individual performances, individual subplots that work for you and some that don't. And the feeling of whether the whole thing comes together or not can kind of be a moving target. I get that. Um, I've had that I've had that reaction to films. There was a film called Lucky Number Seven that I think I've brought up in this way on the podcast before. It was an ensemble film that came out in the early two thousands, and it's a film that just did not work for me. It was trying to uh, trying to be an ensemble gangster film in the vein of like Snatch or Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking 
barrels. Mm -hmm. And what I felt overwhelmingly watching that film was just the writer constantly patting himself on the back for his own cleverness. And that is not a feeling you ever want while watching a film. And to be fair, it is not a feeling I ever experienced while watching this film. The interconnected stories worked for me. I simply just thought there was too much going on here. The performances worked for me. I just thought there was too much going on here. And it was all pretty dark and fucked up. And it's a little much. That's kind of where I come down on this film in the end. All the individual pieces worked. It's just a little much. So if you can take that, if you can take that for, for a fucking two and a half hour film and you want to see some good, violent performances, I mean, I've tolerated this more than the last several Tarantinos, uh, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being the only one of those that worked for me. And it's a similar sort of vibe. It is a film that is overstuffed with violence and depravity, and you shouldn't expect too much from any individual moment, and you will probably be satisfied. Yeah, I agree with that. I think in comparison to Tarantino, Tarantino has goofy violence, and this is not goofy violence. <laughs> yeah, this is very detailed and disturbing violence, realistic violence, including a crucified dog, which uh, definitely disturbed me as well. So Yeah. Ugh. Luckily, I knew that wasn't a real dog, and yeah, that was just a Yeah, problem. so it's like, but still a pretty fucked up thing to Oh, no, like I was, in the moment, I was like, I, I had to pause the movie for a second and be like, all right. I know, where, I know where this movie is going. It's just a tone. Hopefully there's no other dead animals. Because like whenever I see a dog introduced in a film, my it first thought is, guy. please don't Not kill gone. the dog. Don't yeah. kill the dog for nothing. And Because like, that's like a cheap emotional tool, right? You kill a beloved pet and you get some emotional reaction on the characters or the audience. Makes the person who did it seem extra evil. Right. And in this case, because Spider-Man, Arvin, <laughs> cares so much for the dog, it meant something more than just a cheap ploy, right? Yeah. So I mean, I have a theory that that's why you soured on Cloud Atlas, because uh, at one point Hugo Weaving's character murdered the dog. I don't remember that. I, I've, I have, it happens near the end. I have basically forgotten all about Cloud Atlas because that movie was, what, 2012? And it's, it's like a, a billion hours long. And <laughs> I, I remember... I just remember disliking it. I, I, all I have is the I watched emotion. that movie in the last two weeks, but... Uh, um, yeah, he, he does get beaten to death within like five minutes of that moment, though. So so justice is swift in that film. <laughs> does not take hundreds of years and into the next life. Hey, that's another connection to uh, Cargo. Oh, God. Uh, for sure, sure, right? <laughs> Everything's connected, man. All right. Well, uh, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? Oh, man. Like, what a cast of characters. Like, they really brought some awesome, like, awesome actors and actresses to this film. It doesn't all work, but it is a hell of a ride. So if you want to strap yourself in for a, what, two and a half hour slugfest of violence, like, go for it. it, it it's pretty entertaining. Yeah, the, the accents, I do make a little bit of fun with uh, of Tom Holland's accent in uh, uh, when I was tweeting about this on the night, because I think it does slip in and out a little bit. But by and large, I think all the accents, Tom Holland's included, worked in this film. And for a gang of mostly English and Australian actors, that's a yeah. pretty impressive thing to pull off. Sure so. is. We forget that Tom Holland is English, but he actually is. Well, he's he doesn't have that Spider-Man accent, but no, you know, we saw him pull, we saw him pull off Bronx teenager, so I kind of figured he could manage this as well. All right, well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of the devil all the time, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in to filmwonk.net, and have a good night. Mm-hmm.